Part Two of Chapter Seven. On the way from Kangwe to Lake Inkovi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley. Part Two. Of Chapter Seven. It is a strange, wild, lonely bit of the world we are now in, apparently a lake or broad, full of sandbanks, some bare and some in the course of developing into permanent islands by the growth on them of that floating coarse grass, any joint of which being torn off either by the current, a passing canoe, or hippos floats down and grows wherever it settles. Like most things that float in these parts, it usually settles on a sandbank and then grows in much the same way as our couch grass grows on land in England, so as to form a network which catches for its adopted sandbank all sorts of floating debris, so the sandbank comes up in the world. The waters of the wet season, when they rise, drown off the grass, but when they fall, up it comes again from the root, and so, gradually, the sandbank becomes an island, and persuades real trees and shrubs to come and grow on it, and its future is then secured. We skirt alongside a great young island of this class, the sword grass, some ten or fifteen feet high. It has not got any trees on it yet, but by next season or so it doubtless will have. The grass is stabled down into paths by hippos, and just as I have realized who are the road-makers, they appear in person. One immense fellow, hearing us, stands up and shows himself about six feet from us in the grass, gazes calmly, and then yawns, a yawn a yard wide, and grunts his news to his companions, some of whom, there is evidently a large herd, get up and stroll towards us with all the flowing grace of pantechnicon vans in motion. We put our helm paddles hard a starboard and leave that bank. Our hasty trip across to the bank of the island on the other side being accomplished, we, in search of seclusion, and in the hope that out of sight would mean out of mind to hippos, shot down a narrow channel between semi-island sandbanks, and those sandbanks, if you please, are covered with specimens, as fine a set of specimens as you could wish for, of the West African crocodile. These interesting animals are also having their siestas, lying sprawling in all directions on the sand, with their mouths wide open. One immense old lady has a family of lively young crocodiles running over her, evidently playing like a lot of kittens. The heavy musky smell they give off is most repulsive, but we do not rise up and make a row about this, because we feel hopelessly in the wrong in intruding into these family scenes uninvited, and so apologetically pull ourselves along rapidly, not even singing. The pace the canoe goes down that channel would be a wander to Henley Regatta. When out of earshot I ask Pagan 
whether there are many gorillas, elephants, or bush cows around here. Plenty too much, says he, and it occurs to me that the cornfields are growing golden green away in England, and soon there rises up in my mental vision a picture that fascinated my youth in the Flegende Blatter, representing Friedrich Gerstacher off de Rise. That gallant man is depicted tramping on a serpent, new to M. Bollinger, while he attempts to club, with the butt-end of his gun, a most lively savage who, accompanied by a bison, is attacking him in front. A terrific and obviously enthusiastic crocodile is grabbing the tail of the explorer's coat, and the explorer says, Hurrah! Das gibt weiter einen praktischen Artikel vor der Allgemeinen Zeitung. I do not know where in the world Gerstacher was at the time, but I should fancy hereabouts. My vigorous and lively conscience also reminds me that the last words a most distinguished and valued scientific friend had said to me before I left home was, Always take measurements, Miss Kingsley, and always take them from the adult male. I know I have neglected opportunities of carrying this commission out on both those banks, but I do not feel like going back. Besides, the men would not like it, and I have mislaid my yard measure. The extent of water, dotted with sandbanks and islands in all directions, here is great, and seems to be fringed uniformly by low swampy land, beyond which to the north rounded lumps of hills show blue. On one of the islands is a little white house which I am told was once occupied by a black trader for John Holt. It looks a desolate place for any man to live in, and the way the crocodiles and hippo must have come up on the garden ground in the evening time could not have enhanced its charms to the average cautious man. My men say, no man live for that place now. The factory, I believe, has been, for some trade reason, abandoned. Behind it is a great clump of dark-colored trees. The rest of the island is now covered with hippo grass, looking like beautifully kept lawn. We lie up for a short rest at another island, also a weird spot in its way, for it is covered with a grove of only one kind of tree, which has a twisted, contorted gray-white trunk and dull, lifeless-looking green, hard foliage. I learn that these good people, to make topographical confusion worse, confounded, call a river by one name when you are going up it, and by another when you are coming down, just as if you called the Thames the London when you were going up, and the Greenwich when you were coming down. The banks all round this lake or broad seem all light-coloured sand and clay. We pass out of it into a channel. Current flowing north. As we are entering the channel between banks of grass overgrown sand, a superb white crane is seen standing on the sand edge to the left. Grey-shirt attempts to get a shot at it, but it, alarmed at our unusual appearance, raises itself up with one of those graceful preliminary curtsies, and after one or two preliminary flaps spreads its broad wings and sweeps away, with its long legs trailing behind it like a thing on a Japanese screen. The river into which we ran zigzags about and then take a course south-southeast. It is studded with islands slightly higher than those we have passed, 
and thinly clad with forest. The place seems alive with birds. Flocks of pelican and crane rise up before us out of the grass, and every now and then a crocodile slides off the bank into the water. Wonderfully like old logs they look, particularly when you see one letting himself roll and float down on the current. In spite of these interests, I began to wonder where in this lonely land we were to sleep to-night. In front of us were miles of distant mountains, but in no direction the slightest sign of human habitation. Soon we passed out of our channel into a lovely, strangely melancholy, lonely-looking lake. Lake Inkovi, my friends tell me. It is exceedingly beautiful. The rich golden sunlight of the late afternoon, soon followed by the short-lived, glorious flushes of color of the sunset, and the afterglow, play over the scene as we paddle across the lake to the north-north-east, our canoe leaving a long trail of frosted silver behind her as she glides over the mirror-like lake, and each stroke of the paddle sending down air with it to come up again in luminous silver bubbles, not as before in swirls of sand and mud. The lake shore is, in all directions, wreathed with nobly forested hills, indigo and purple in the dying daylight. On the north-north-east and north-east these come directly down into the lake, on northwest, north, southwest, and southeast, there is a band of well-forested ground behind which they rise. In the north and northeastern part of the lake, several exceedingly beautiful wooded islands show, with gray rocky beaches and dwarf cliffs. Signs of human habitation at first there were none and in spite of its beauty there was something which I was almost going to say was repulsive. The men evidently felt the same as I did. Had any one told me that the air that lay on the lake was poison, or that in among its forests lay some path to regions of utter death, I should have said, it looks like that. But no one said anything, and we only looked round uneasily, until the comfortable-souled singlet, made the unfortunate observation that he smelt blood. We all called him an utter fool to relieve our minds, and made our way towards the second island. When we got near enough to it to see details, a large village showed among the trees on its summit, and a steep dwarf cliff, overgrown with trees and creeping plants, came down to a small beach, covered with large water-washed grey stones. There was evidently some kind of a row going on in that village that took a lot of shouting, too. We made straight for the beach and drove our canoe among its outlying rocks, and then each of my men stowed his paddle quickly, slung on his ammunition bag, and picked up his ready-loaded gun, sliding the skin sheath off the lock. Pagan got out onto the stones alongside the canoe, just as the inhabitants became aware of our arrival, and, abandoning what I hope was a mass meeting to remonstrate with the local authorities on the insanitary state of the town, came, a brown mass of naked humanity, down the steep cliff path to attend to us, whom they evidently regarded as an imperial interest. Things did not look restful 
nor these fans personally pleasant. Every man among them, no woman showed, was armed with a gun, and they loosened their shovel-shaped knives in their sheaths as they came, evidently regarding a fight quite as eminent as we did. They drew up about twenty places from us in silence. Pagan and Grey Shirt, who had joined him, held out their unembarrassed hands, and shouted out the name of the fan-men they had said they were friendly with, Kiva Kiva. The fans stood still and talked angrily among themselves for some minutes, and then Silence said to me, It would be bad palaver if Kiva no live for this place. In a tone that conveyed to me the idea, he thought this unpleasant contingency almost a certainty. The passenger exhibited unmistakable symptoms of wishing he had come by another boat. I got up from my seat in the bottom of the canoe and leisurely strolled ashore, saying to the line of angry faces, Mboluani, in an unconcerned way, although I well knew it was etiquette for them to salute first. They grunted, but did not commit themselves further. A minute after, they parted to allow a fine-looking middle-aged man naked save for a twist of dirty cloth round his loins, and a bunch of leopard and wild cat-tails hung from his shoulder by a strip of leopard skin to come forward. Pagan went for him with a rush, as if he were going to clasp him to his ample bosom, but holding his hands just off from touching the fan's shoulder in the usual way, while he said in fan, "'Don't you know me, my beloved Kiva? Surely you have not forgotten your old friend?' Kiva grunted feelingly and raised up his hands and held them just off touching Pagan, and we breathed again. Then Grayshirt made a rush at the crowd and went through great demonstrations of affection with another gentleman whom he recognized as being a fan-friend of his own, and whom he had not expected to meet here. I looked round to see if there were not any fan from the upper Ogowe whom I knew to go for, but could not see one that I could, on the strength of a previous acquaintance, and on their individual merits I did not feel inclined to do even in this fashionable imitation embrace. Indeed, I must say that never, even in a picture-book, have I seen such a set of wild, wicked-looking savages as those we faced this night, and with whom it was touch-and-go for twenty of the longest minutes I have ever lived, whether we fought for our lives, I was going to say, but it would not have even for that, but merely for the price of them. Peace having been proclaimed, conversation became general. Grayshirt brought his friend up and introduced him to me, and we shook hands and smiled at each other in the conventional way. Pagan's friend, who was next introduced, was more alarming, for he held his hands for half a minute just above my elbows, without quite touching me, but he meant well and then we all disappeared into a brown mass of humanity and a fog of noise. You would have thought from the violence and vehemence of the shouting and gesticulation that we were going to be forthwith torn to shreds, but not a single hand really touched me, and as I, pagan, and grey-shirt went up to the town in the midst of the throng, the crowd opened in front and closed in behind, evidently half-frightened at my appearance." The row, when we reached the town, redoubled in volume from the fact that the ladies, the children, and the dogs joined in. Every child in the place, as soon as it saw my white face, 
let a howl out of it as if it had seen his satanic majesty, horns, hoofs, tail, and all, and fled into the nearest hut headlong, and I fear, from the continuance of the screams, had fits. The town was exceedingly filthy. The remains of the crocodile they had been eating the week before last, and piles of fish offal, and remains of an elephant, hippo, or manatee, I really can't say which, decomposition was too far advanced, united to form a most impressive stench. The bark huts are, as usual in a fan town, in unbroken rows, but there are three or four streets here, not one only as in most cases. The Palaver House is in the innermost street, and there we went, and noticed that the village view was not in the direction in which we had come, but across towards the other side of the lake. I told the Ajumba to explain we wanted hospitality for the night, and wished to hire three carriers for tomorrow to go with us to the Remboy. For an hour and three quarters by my watch I stood in the suffocating, smoky, hot atmosphere, listening to, but only faintly understanding, the war of words and gesture that raged round us. At last the fact that we were to be received, being settled, Grayshirt's friend led us out of the guard-house, the crowd flinching back as I came through it, to his own house on the right-hand side of the street of huts. It was a very different dwelling to Grayshirt's residence at Arevuma. I was as high as its roof-ridge, and had to stoop low to get through the door-hole. Inside the hut was fourteen or fifteen feet square, unlit by any window. The door-hole could be closed by pushing a broad piece of bark across it under two horizontally fixed bits of stick. The floor was sand, like the street outside, but dirtier. On it in one place was a fire, whose smoke found its way out through the roof. In one corner of the room was a rough bench of wood, which from the few filthy cloths on it and a wood pillow I saw was the bed. There was no other furniture in the hut save some boxes, which I presume held my host's earthly possessions. From the bamboo roof hung a long stick with hooks on it, the hooks made by cutting off branching twigs. This was evidently the hanging wardrobe, and on it hung some few fetish charms, and a beautiful ornament of wild cat and leopard tails, tied on to a square piece of leopard skin, in the centre of which was a little mirror, and round the mirror were sewn dozens of common shirt buttons. In among the tails hung three little brass bells and a brass rattle. These bells and rattles are not only for dandy, but serve to scare away snakes when the ornament is worn in the forest. A fine strip of silky-haired, young gorilla skin made the band to sling the ornament from the shoulder when worn. Gorillas seem well enough known around here. One old lady in the crowd outside, I saw, had a necklace made of sixteen gorilla canine teeth, slung on a pineapple fibre string. Gray Shirt explained to me that this is the best house in the village, and my host the most renowned elephant hunter in the district. We then returned to the canoe, whose occupants had been getting uneasy about the way affairs were going on top, on account of the uproar they heard and the time we had been away. We got into the canoe and took her round the little promontory at the end of the island to the other beach, which is the main beach.' 
By arriving at the beach when we did, we took our fan friends in the rear, and they did not see us coming in the gloaming. This was all for the best, it seems, as they said they should have fired on us before they had had time to see we were rank outsiders, on the apprehension that we were coming from one of the fan towns we had passed, and with whom they were on bad terms regarding a lady who bolted there from her lawful lord, taking with her, cautious soul, a quantity of rubber. The only white man who had been here before in the memory of men was a French officer who paid Kiva six dollars to take him somewhere, I was told, but I could not find out when or what happened to that Frenchman. It was a long time ago, Kiva said, but these folks have no definite way of expressing duration of time, nor do I believe any great mental idea of it, although their ideas are, as usual, with West Africans, far ahead of their language. All the goods were brought up to my hut, and while Nguta gets my tea, we started talking the carrier palaver again. The fans received my offer, starting at two dollars, ahead of what M. Jacot said would be enough, with utter scorn, and every dramatic gesture of dissent, one man, pretending to catch grey shirt's words in his hands, flings them to the ground and stamps them under his feet. I affected an easy take-it-or-leave-it manner and looked on. A woman came out of the crowd to me and held out a mass of slimy grey abomination on a bit of plantain leaf. Smashed snail. I accepted it and gave her fish-hooks. She was delighted and her companions excited, so she put the hooks into her mouth for safe-keeping. I hurriedly explained in my best fan that I do not require any more snail, so another lady tried the effect of a pineapple. There might be no end to this, so I retired into trade and asked what she would sell it for. She did not want to sell it, she wanted to give it me, so I gave her fish-hooks. Silence and singlet interposed, saying the price for pineapples is one leaf of tobacco, but I explained I was not buying. Ngota turned up with my tea, so I went inside and had it on the bed. The door-hole was entirely filled with a mosaic of faces, but no one attempted to come in. All the time the carrier, Palaver, went on without cessation, and I went out and offered to take grey shirts and Pagan's place, knowing they must want their chop, but they refused relief and also said I must not raise the price. I was offering too big a price now, and if I once rise the fan will only think I will keep on rising, and so make the palaver longer to talk. How long does a palaver usually take to talk around here? I asked. The last one I talked, says Pagan, took three weeks, and that was only a small price palaver. Well, say I, my price is for a start to-morrow, after then I have no price, after that I go away. Another hour, however, sees the jam made, and to my surprise I find the three richest men in this town of Mfeta have personally taken up the contract. Kiva, my host, Fika, a fine young fellow, and Wiki, another noted elephant hunter. These three fans, the Forajumba and the Igalwa in Gota, I think will be enough. Moreover, I fancy it's safer not to have an overpowering percentage of fans in the party, as I know we shall have considerable stretches of uninhabited forest to traverse, and the Ajumba say that the fans will kill people, i.e., the black traders who venture into their country, 
and cut them up into neat pieces, eat what they want at the time, and smoke the rest of the bodies for future use. Now I do not want to arrive at the Rembwe in a smoked condition, even should my fragrance be neat, and I am going in a different direction to what I said I was when leaving Kangwe, and there are so many ways of accounting for death about here, leopard, canoe, capsize, elephants, etc., that even if I were traced, well, nothing could be done then anyhow, so we'll only take three fans. One must diminish dead certainties to the level of sporting chances along here, or one can never get on. No one, either Ajumba or Fan, knew the exact course we were to take. The Ajumba had never been this way before, the way for black traders across being via Lake Izingo, the way Mr. Good of the American Mission once went, and the Fans said they only knew the way to a big fan town called Efua, where no white man or black trader had yet been. There is a path from there to the Rembwe they knew, because the Efua people take their trade all to the Rembwe. They would, they said, come with me all the way if I would guarantee them safety, if they found war on the road. This I agreed to do, and arranged to pay off at Hayton and Cookson's sub-factory on the Rembwe, and they have, look my mouth and it be sweet, so palaver done set. Every load then, by the light of the bush lights held by the women, we arranged. I had to unpack my bottles of fishes, so as to equalize the weight of the loads. Every load is then made into a sort of cocoon with bush rope. I was left in peace at about 11.30 p.m., and, clearing off the cloths from the bench, threw myself down and tried to get some sleep, for we were to start, the fans said, before dawn. Sleep impossible! mosquitoes, lice. So at twelve-forty I got up and slid aside my bark door. I found Pagan asleep under his mosquito bar outside, across the doorway, but managed to get past him without rousing him from his dreams of palaver, which he was still talking aloud and reconnoitred the town. The inhabitants seemed to have talked themselves quite out and were sleeping heavily. I went down then to our canoe and found it safe, high up among the fan canoes on the stones, and then I slid a small fan canoe off, and taking a paddle from a cluster stuck in the sand, paddled out on to the dark lake. It was a wonderfully lovely quiet night, with no light save that from the stars. One immense planet shone preeminent in the purple sky, throwing a golden path down onto the still waters. Quantities of big fish sprung out of the water, their glistening silver-white scales flashing, so that they looked like slashing swords. Some bird was making a long, low, boom-booming sound away on the forest shore. I paddled leisurely across the lake to the shore on the right, and seeing crawling on the ground some large glow-worms, drove the canoe onto the bank among some hippo-grass, and got out to get them. While engaged on this hunt I felt the earth quiver under my feet, and I heard a soft, big, sowing sound, and looking around saw I had dropped in on a hippo banquet. I made out five of the immense brutes round me, so I softly returned to the canoe and shoved off, stealing along the bank, paddling under water until I deemed it safe to run out across the lake from my island. I reached the other end of it, to that on which the village is situated and finding a miniature rocky bay, 
with a soft patch of sand and no hippo-grass, the incidents of the fan-hut suggested the advisability of a bath. Moreover, there was no china collection in that hut, and it would be a long time before I got another chance. So I go ashore again, and, carefully investigating the neighborhood, to make certain there were no human habitation near, I then indulged in a wash in peace. Drying oneself on one's cummerbund is not pure joy, but it can be done when you put your mind to it. While I was finishing my toilet, I saw a strange thing happen. Down through the forest on the lake bank opposite came a violet ball the size of a small orange. When it reached the sand beach it hovered along it to and fro close to the ground. In a few minutes another ball of similarly colored light came towards it from behind one of the islets, and the two wavered to and fro over the beach, sometimes circling round each other. I made off towards them in the canoe, thinking, as I still do, they were some brand-new kind of luminous insect. When I got on to their beach one of them went off into the bushes, and the other away over the water. I followed in the canoe, for the water here is very deep, and when I almost thought I had got it, it went down into the water, and I could see it glowing as it sunk, until it vanished in the depths. I made my way back hastily, fearing my absence with the canoe might give rise, if discovered, to trouble, and by three-thirty I was back in the hut safe, but not so comfortable as I had been on the lake. A little before five my men are stirring, and I get my tea— I do not state my escapade to them, but ask what those lights were. Akom, said the fan, and pointing to the shore of the lake where I had been during the night, they said, They came there. It was an aku, or devil-bush. More than ever did I regret not having secured one of those sort of two phenomena. What a joy a real devil appropriately put up in raw alcohol would have been to my scientific friends! Wednesday, July 24th. We got away about 5.30, the fans coming in a separate canoe. We called the next island to Mfeta to buy some more aguma. The inhabitants are very much interested in my appearance, running along the stony beach as we paddle away, and standing at the end of it until we are out of sight among the many islands at the north-east end of Lake Inkovi. The scenery is savage, there are no terrific cliffs nor towering mountains to make it what one usually calls wild or romantic, but there is a distinction about it which is all its own. This northeast end has beautiful sand beaches on the southern side, in front of the forested bank, lying in smooth ribbons along the level shore, and in scallops round the promontories where the hills come down into the lake. The forest on these hills, or mountains, for they are part of the Sierra del Cristal, is very dark in color, and the undergrowth seems scant. We presently come to a narrow but deep channel into the lake, coming from the eastward, which we go up, winding our course with it into a valley between the hills. After going up it a little way we find it completely fenced across with stout stakes, a space being left open in the middle broader than the space between the other stakes, and over this is poised a spear with a bush-rope attached, and weighted at the top of the haft with a great lump of rock. 
The whole affair is kept in position by a bush-rope, so arranged, just under the level of the water, that anything passing through the opening would bring the spear down. This was a trap for hippo or manatee, Nganaimanga, and similar in structure to those one sees set in the hippo-grass near villages and plantations, which serve the double purpose of defending the vegetable supply and adding to the meat supply of the inhabitants. We squeeze through between the stakes so as not to let the trap off, and find our little river leads us into another lake, much smaller than Inkovi. It is studded with islands of fantastic shapes, all wooded with high trees of an equal level, and with little or no undergrowth among them, so their pale grey stems look like clusters of columns supporting a dark green ceiling. The forest comes down steep hillsides to the water edge in all directions, and a dark gloomy-looking herb grows up out of black slime and water, in a bank of ribbon in front of it. There is another channel out of this lake still to the northeast. The fans say they think it goes into the big lake far, far away, i.e. Lake Izingo. From the look of the land I think this river connecting Izingo and Lake Nkovi wanders down this valley between the mountain spurs of the Sierra del Cristal, expanding into one gloomy lake after another. We run our canoe into a bank of the dank, dark-colored water herb to the right, and disembark into a fitting introduction to the sort of country we shall have to deal with before we see the Rembue, namely, up to our knees in black slime. End of part two of chapter seven on the way from Kangwe to Lake Nkovi read by Kehinde of Bahatrek dot com